0: Exodus chapter 1. I guess I don't often think about consciously uh, remembering that God is a, is a miracle worker. You know? And we, have to, we have to keep that in mind. I was talking to somebody here in the church recently, and we were talking about the uh, kind of the general overall condition of the country and the way we're, you know, slouching towards hell <laughs> more and more every day. And uh, he said, you know, we should... We should pray about it. I've been here and pray about it my whole life. (laughs) Go to your dad and say, "Dad, I want to get a horse." What's he say? Pray about it. Dad, I want to get me a girlfriend. What's he say? Pray about it. (laughs) Don't. Does somebody say don't? (laughs) Dad, I want to get a job. You know, pray about it, and then you know, then tired of where the country is going. Tired of the way the community is going, tired of the way the church is going, tired of the way your life is going, pray about it. Talk to God and say, Lord, I need your help here. I need you to work in my midst. That's, that's, that, was a, that was a nice song. I enjoyed singing that. It's a good reminder. Let's talk about something along those lines. If you found the book of Exodus this morning, you have come to the end of Genesis, which is just to the left, probably a few pages. And the book of Genesis ends with a man of some renown who is dead and buried, a man named Joseph. Joseph was the favored son of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the Old Testament. And Joseph was about 17 years of age when he started having some dreams of something God was going to do with him in his his future life. And these dreams that he shared with his father and with his brothers, and plus his father's favoring him over his other brothers, caused his brethren to uh, you know, not really care for him too much. I've heard some Bible teachers say that uh, Joseph was favored and he was also haughty. I never thought about it like that. Then maybe the reason why Joseph's brothers didn't like him too much was because even though he was favored, he wasn't favored and humble. He was favored and haughty. Now, it's hard to be favored and not be arrogant. It's hard to be the golden-haired child and not have some pride that comes in. So maybe the reason, maybe one of the contributing factors to Joseph's brothers not caring for him was the fact that, you know, he was special and knew it. you ever met somebody like that? Special and they know it? So, but Joseph, his brothers are angry with him and they decide they're going to kill him. They're going to rub him out. And so they, they catch him, and they put him in a pit, and they send word back to dad that Joseph's been killed. And while the brothers are getting ready to kill Joseph, some Midianite traders come by, and one of the brothers named Reuben, uh, I think it's Reuben, he says, why don't we just sell him into slavery instead, instead of killing him? Now, if you had your choices between dying or being sold into slavery, you might, you might choose slavery, <laughs> Maybe. But they sold him into slavery, and the Midianites took Joseph down into Egypt. This is a traveling caravan. These are guys who are selling people for a living, and they they would travel a circuit selling people. And they take Joseph, their newly acquired uh, property, a young 17-year-old guy, well-fed, probably well-favored, and they take him down into Egypt, and they sell him there to a man named Potiphar. And he works for Potiphar. Does Potiphar a good job, honest, hard-working guy. Well, Potiphar's wife, she sees that jo- Joseph is young and handsome, and he's around the house a lot while Potiphar is gone to work. And so day by day, she says, you know, Joseph, you're a good-looking dude. I can see her in my mind putting her hand on his arm and saying, well, you have nice muscles. I I can see her calling him to come and help her do all kinds of, of, you know, little things. Joseph, would you come and help me move my hat boxes from this closet to that closet? And she'd say, oh, you're so tall. You're such a big help to me. And over time, Potiphar's wife tries to get Joseph to go to bed with her. Day by day, she's trying to lure him into bed. Finally, one day, passion and desire overcomes her, and she grabs a hold of him and says, Come on, let's go to bed. And Joseph does something that's probably out of character for most 17- or 18-year-old guys. Is He shakes off his coat. Leaves, you ever had somebody grab you by the coat and try to get away from him them and, leave, and run off and leave your coat in their hand? That's what Joseph does. Now, Potiphar's wife, she is not going to take this lying down. She is not going to be disdained and disesteemed and dis... Those are all the same word, aren't they? She's not going to take that kind of rejection from him. He's a slave. And so she has his coat. And when Potiphar comes home, probably a couple things in her mind. One, is she's probably thinking that, well, Joseph's going to tell Potiphar. And Potiphar's going to be mad at me. So she's going to head this off at the pass. And so when Potiphar comes home, she says, you know that servant you brought in here, that Hebrew that you bought? He tried to get me to go to bed with him. And I have his cloak, his coat right here as the evidence. Potiphar, when he learns that his servant who's doing him a good job, somebody who he trusts a lot, when he learns that this guy is taking liberties with his old lady, what does he do? Well, he blows, a, he blows a gasket. And he, he takes Joseph and has Joseph cast into the king's prison. Now, this is not without some significance because in the king's prison, that's, it's not the best prison, it's the worst prison. And one of the Psalms, they say, hints at this, is that the beatings that Joseph received in prison were a special kind of beatings, a special kind of punishment. But while he's there in prison now, Joseph continues to do what he's always done. He just does a good job for whoever's around. And in prison, he works himself kind of up the ladder from entry-level prisoner (laughs) to a trustee of sorts. And the pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he has these two servants, a a butler and a baker. The candlestick maker died. (laughs) The butcher... The baker and the butler, they fall out of favor with Pharaoh and they get cast into prison. And they're kind of worried about this, and they have a couple dreams. And they ask, and people kind of know Joseph was a knowing kind of person. You ever met somebody who is just kind of knowing? Maybe just don't know that term. Somebody who seems to have a wisdom that other people don't. Somebody just they just seem to know, know stuff. And so Joseph is with them, and they say to him, we've had these two dreams. And Joseph says, why don't you tell me your dreams? And maybe we can figure out what they mean. So they they tell him the dreams. The the baker, Joseph tells him, he tells Joseph his dream, and Joseph says, "Uh, you're going to be dead. Your dream means you're going to die. The butler, Joseph tells him his dream, and he says, you're going to be restored back to Pharaoh's right hand. And he said, when you get back up there to Pharaoh's house, I want you to do me a favor. Remember me to Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh about me. And so the baker is taken. And what Joseph said would happen did happen. He, he dies. He's hanged. And the butler is restored. He goes back to Pharaoh's house. But he forgets Joseph. He forgets to tell Pharaoh about the guy who helped him out in prison. So two years go by. I'm going to take my coat off because I'm tired of wearing it. So two years go by, and Pharaoh has a dream. And Pharaoh's dream scares him. And so Pharaoh calls in all of his wise men, all of his counselors, and he says, Guys, I've had this dream, and he said, I don't know what it means, and it's bothering me. You ever had a dream that bothers you? A dream that keeps you up at night? Maybe the same kind of dream. My dad said when he was a kid that he had the same dream every night. Falling, 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 falling. Every night. My dad said that dream ended, incidentally, the night after he was born again. He never had that dream again. Fascinating thing, isn't it? This dream bothered, bothered Pharaoh. Pharaoh is talking about it. His butler overhears it, and the butler says, man, there was a guy in prison, and I I had a dream too, and he told me the dream. He interpreted the dream, and his interpretation was exactly correct, so why don't you call for him? And so the, the call comes from the palace down to the prison, and Pharaoh says, I want Joseph to come up, so they take Joseph and they clean him up. It's interesting. The Bible says that they shaved him. You don't see this in the Bible very often, but it says they shaved him, shaved his head, Probably shaved off his beard if he had one. More than likely, he shaved off his eyebrows. Believe it or not, it was a cultural thing. Probably shaved his head too. He's all sparkling clean. And he's brought up into the palace. And Pharaoh tells him the dream. And Joseph interprets the dream. And basically what it is, is there's going to be seven years of the best harvest Egypt's, Egypt's ever had. And at the end of those seven years, there's going to be seven years of the worst drought and famine that Egypt has ever seen. And so they need to get ready for the seven lean years by building storage houses and barns and, and making preparation take advantage of the big harvest so they can last through the drought season, the famine. And Pharaoh says, that's what we'll do, and I need somebody who's got the brain power to do it. And Joseph, I think you're the guy. And so Joseph goes from the prison to being the vice-regent or the viceroy, the second in command of Egypt. Just by doing what's right, trying to be a good, hard-working person. Sometimes preachers will outline this by saying that Joseph in Potiphar's house practiced purity. When he was tempted with sexual sins, what did he do? He didn't give in. It'd be foolish for us to think that Joseph wasn't tempted. He's a red-blooded dude just like the rest of us. But he practiced purity. He did the right thing in that situation. And then when he goes to prison, he practices patience. Patience. Now, remember the, the butler said, he said, I will remember you to Pharaoh. Now if I if if you're in Joseph's situation and you say tell Pharaoh about me remember me to Pharaoh you might expect a short delay in a change in your situation. You're expecting something to happen, somebody to put in a good word for you, right? But it takes 2 years. Joseph has to wait 2 years. All in all Joseph's captivity from, he, from when he's sold into slavery at age 13 until he, he becomes the vice-regent of Egypt is 13 years. It's 13 years. Because he's 30 years old when he gets promoted out of the prison into the palace. And during this time, Joseph, during those seven lean years, Joseph is in, char- in charge of dispensing grain to the, the communities and the people of Egypt. And it's one of the greatest government schemes you can ever imagine, because the government owns all the grain. The government owns all the food. And in exchange for the food, the people who are landowners, they come and they exchange their land ownership for food to live. And so the people are happy. Pharaoh is happy. Pharaoh's holdings just grow and grow and grow. And then as this famine is just long-term setting in, people in the region begin to come, and they're bringing gold, and they're bringing monies to buy grain so they can survive. And some of those people that come to buy grain from Joseph are his brothers who sold him into slavery. His brothers come. They don't recognize him. They're kind of long story short... Ultimately, Joseph says, hey, I'm your brother. They say, oh, no. (laughs) Not oh, boy, but oh, no, because they know what they did. And then Joseph, in 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 an incredible act of, of mercy and grace, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, it's a type. Joseph was wronged by his brethren. Christ was wronged by his brethren. Christ was dead. Joseph was dead, sold into slavery. It's a sign of death. But then Joseph is resurrected, just like Jesus is resurrected. He comes back to life. He's now obvious again. Joseph makes up with his brothers. His brothers make peace with him. And he wants to know, is dad still alive? Is Jacob still alive? And they say, yes, he's still alive. And so what he does is Joseph moves his whole family down to northern Egypt, to a place called Goshen and that's where they live. He cares for them. 75 people, what the Bible says, 75. This family was 75 people strong, moves them down there, and they live. And because they know Joseph, and because Pharaoh knows Joseph, the Jewish people do pretty good. Have you guys ever been in this situation where it's not what you know, but who you know? Sometimes the good old boy system works out good for those of you who are good old boys, right? (laughs) you got to know somebody. And they knew somebody. They knew Joseph, and Joseph knew Pharaoh. And Joseph, his life extends past that current Pharaoh into the second Pharaoh. But Joseph, he marries, he has has a couple children, Manassas and Ephraim. And so Joseph is a fixture in, in the Egyptian culture for a long time. But ultimately, the time comes when Joseph is completely forgotten. And we come to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, listen to the reading. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They were afraid of these multiplying Jews. So verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them, Shiprah, and the other, Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. It is in this period of their history, they are an oppressed people, and now the government is saying, we don't want you to have any more children. We're going to kill off all the men children. We're going to kill off the baby boys. We, we want to stop you from spreading and, and multiplying as a people. And these two Hebrew midwives, they do something interesting here. The king says, kill the boys. When the baby is born, whoever's birthing the child, delivering the child, is is the first one to see the gender of the child. The first one. And if it's a little boy, just break his neck. Just take your thumb and mash down on his windpipe. Snuff out his little life. Before the mom can even know. Because when babies are born, when when the baby is first born, there's kind of a gap. The babies don't come out screaming and crying. Usually you gotta get the goo out of there or smack them on the hind end. Been, I've, seen, I've seen with five births I've seen various techniques. <laughs> so before there's a sound from that baby, before you can even say it's a boy or girl, just kill that baby. And then you could always just say. What happens sometimes? Sometimes babies die at birth. One of our children was born, had the umbilical cord wrapped around its neck. And so right as, right as it was being birthed, you know, it's, it's, you know, out, out, out. And then sudden, when the doctor saw there was an umbilical cord wrapped around the neck, it was, whoa! And the doctor took those little scissors and cut it away and, you know, everything went fine. Kill the babies. But these Hebrew women, they, they don't do it. What faith they had to defy the king. The potentate of the realm is saying, kill these children, and they say, We ain't doing it. We ain't doing it. And then Pharaoh finds out what they're up to, and he comes back and he says, You guys have been letting these boys live. And here's what you see, I, this is so fascinating to me about deception, is they tell a lie. And God blesses them for it. <laughs> One of those interesting moments in, biblical, in the biblical stories. Well, this goes on for a while, and then finally, when they realize that they can't stop the birthing of sons, Pharaoh says, Every male that's born amongst the Jews must be cast into the River Nile. Now, The River Nile was a, was a river that was up and down a lot, but it's inhabited with crocodiles. Up until probably the World War II, it was very popu- a very popular pastime for people, to get it on a barge or a boat, powerboat and go up and down the river now shooting crocodiles. There are so many crocodiles, it's like shooting coyotes or shooting rats. Just kill them. The river's filled with crocodiles. And there's a, a young woman, she has a son. It's her third child. She has a son named Aaron and she has a daughter named Miriam. And then the Lord gives her this third child. And this child is born in the time of Israel's history when the command from the Pharaoh is the child should be cast into the river to be eaten by the crocodiles. She sees the baby born. And the Bible says, it doesn't say this about every baby that's born, but the Bible says this baby was fine. (laughs) Was a fine child. And so she hides him. She doesn't want to throw him in the river. She loves him. She hides him for three months and when she could hide him no longer, She went down and she got a bunch of reeds, and she wove them together, and she waterproofed them with, the ESV says, bitumen and pitch. I think the old authorized version just says she daubed it with slime to waterproof it. The word word that is translated there as a little basket just means box. It's the same word that's translated coffin sometimes, just a little box with a lid. And she tucks little baby Moses in there. He doesn't have a name yet. She tucks little baby in there. She takes him down to the river and she sticks him in the reeds. She nestles that little little basket in there and shoves it in there. And she has her daughter Miriam watch, keep an eye on that baby. Because she wants to keep this baby alive. If the soldiers come to search the house, the baby won't be there. The baby will be down by the river. And technically, technically, did she throw her baby in the river or not? Technically, he's in the river. She's a smart woman. Technically, he's in the river. While Miriam is watching little baby Moses' basket, a beautiful woman comes down to the river to wash. The daughter of Pharaoh. She comes with some of her servants. Now, what's interesting about this is this is a river filled with what? that? And here is the king's daughter coming down there to take a bath in the river. What is she up to? Why is she washing in this river? Doesn't she have hot water at the house? Doesn't she have, you know, (laughs) doesn't she have a a clean water to use? Well, one, one Bible commentator and scholar says that The reason she had gone down to the Nile River was because the Nile River was a sacred river and and, and a a divine river to the Egyptians just like the, uh, the big river in India is for the Indian people, the Ganges. And she went down there to wash because for ceremonial purification. She went down there to be cured, maybe, this guy said, of her infertility. So here's a woman wanting to have a child, wanting to have a baby. She goes down to the river that's supposed to cure her so she can have a baby. And what does she find? Tucked into the reeds in a little box that's waterproof. What does she find? A little baby. She hears a baby crying. She gets the baby. It is she who names the baby Moses because he has been drawn from the water. And there you have Moses. And this little guy, Moses, is going to be the savior of Israel. He's going to deliver them. Eighty years later, Moses is going to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. But before he does that, he has to experience some things. The first thing Moses has to experience is personal failure. Do you have any personal failures in your life? Have you ever ruined some portion of your life? Personal failures. Moses' personal failure is is that he knows he's supposed to do something for God. He knows he's supposed to lead the Israelites out of captivity. And one day he he sees an Egyptian man beating up a Hebrew man, and he gets mad about it. And he goes over there and he fights with the Egyptian man and he kills the Egyptian man and hides his body in the sand and thinks, nobody knows. <laughs> you got any of those in your life? You got any of these personal failures that are part of your life and you think you, you put them under the sand, you got them all covered over and nobody knows? You got anything like that? I won't ask for a raise of hands because I know there'd be a lot of hands not raised. <laughs> Nobody's going to admit to that. If you got them buried, they're buried, and you're not getting them back out. You got them. I got them. Personal failure. Moses goes down. He sees two Hebrew guys fighting. They're beating on each other. And he goes down there and says, hey, will not you guys knock it off? You're brothers. You're related. You're family. Don't do that. And they say, what are you going to do, kill us like you killed that Egyptian? It's known. People know about it. What do do you do when you have personal failures? What's your first first instinct? What's your first inclination? Is it to own up to it or run from it? What is it? Run from it. Run from it. If you're like Adam in the garden, when God came and said, Adam, you've eaten up the tree, haven't you? What does Adam say? Does Adam say, yes, God, I did? No. No. He blames Eve, deflection. Tries to get distance from it. Moses, he runs away. He runs from the situation. He goes into the wilderness, into obscurity, into nowhere. And he's there about 40 years or so, give or take. He's there a long time, maybe 20 years. But while he's there, he finds the love of his life. A girl named Zipporah. Isn't that a beautiful name? Zipporah. He marries this girl named Zipporah, has a couple children with her. He works for her father, who is Jethro, not Bodine. (laughs) How many of you know who Jethro Bodine is? Raise your hand. That's the elect right there. (laughs) Jethro Bodine. Jethro, the priest of Midian, and Joseph, or not Joseph, Moses is watching over his sheep for him, and then then Moses goes, and he sees a burning bush, and the burning bush is a voice, is the Lord speaking there, and he says, I want you to go back and lead the people out of captivity. Now's the time. Moses goes back to Egypt, and he goes to Pharaoh, a Pharaoh who does not know him, a Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. And a Pharaoh who says with his own mouth, when Moses comes and says, I'm here from God, Jehovah has sent me to tell you to let his people go, Pharaoh says, I don't know who you are, and I don't know who your God is, so why should I obey him? Why should I obey him? And what that does is that initiates a sequence of events where Moses at God's behest, opens a can of sorrow and pours it on the heads of the people of Egypt. The ten plagues. The ten plagues. Each one worse than the preceding one. Now, each of those ten plagues are actually a way that God humiliates the gods of the Egyptians. Because each one of those plagues was a a sign from God that the Egyptian God of that particular natural element or creature was inferior to him. He just makes them all look silly. But then there's the last plague. And that's what I want to talk to you about for the next few minutes. The last plague is the Passover. The Bible tells us here in Exodus Moses goes into Pharaoh and he says, You gotta let us go. And Pharaoh says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let you go. So God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh on a particular night. We know the date. Nisan, the 15th day. April 15th, give or take, according by our calendar. The Lord says, I... I'm going to come down and I am going to walk through Egypt and I am going to kill every firstborn person. Yeah, I'm going to kill. God says, I'm going to kill every firstborn person. If it's a son or a daughter, if they belong to rich people, if they belong to poor people, I am going to walk among the people and I'm going to kill the firstborn. Pharaoh, he, he's unfazed. He doesn't seem to care about this. Listen to the reading. This is Exodus 11, verse 4. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, into the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and the firstborn of all the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog will growl against my people, the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. This is what Moses says to Pharaoh. This is what's going to happen. In verse 9, the Lord says to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. But then... Chapter 12, the Lord tells Moses and Aaron that the only way to escape this going among the people by God, the only way to escape death for any firstborn, is going to require you to do something. To escape God's judgment, it's going to require you to do something. And that's what I want to talk to you about now. God is going to judge this world that we live in. Judgment is coming. And when it does come, it's going to be total judgment. It's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to, be, it's going to destroy the world when God comes and judges the world for, for the world's sinfulness. But before judgment comes, God in His mercy and grace, before this final judgment comes, the 2 Thessalonians 1.4, before God comes... In flaming vengeance before he comes, he said, "This is what you want to this is what's going to have to happen if you escape, want to escape." Now for Moses and those guys, the Lord said, "You have to get a lamb, it has to be a good lamb, it has to be spotless. It has to be the pick of the litter, you might say. You have to kill it in the evening at twilight. You have to take the blood from that lamb and put it on the doorpost and the lintels of the door. So, can you guys on this side see that door right there? You guys all see it? Can you guys on this side see that door right there? Now, the doorposts are the side, the side parts. The side parts. You guys probably know this. You don't need me to tell you, but you're smart. These are the doorposts, the side parts. This is the lintel right here. Same over there. Same over there. Doorpost, lintel, doorpost. They're supposed to take the blood of this lamb and apply it. And so it means up, across, and down. Kind of like an upside-down U. And he says, everybody's supposed to eat some of the lamb and stay inside that door behind the blood, and if they do that, they'll be okay. That's what's going to be required. That's what's going to happen. Well, in the story of Exodus here, that's what happens. Everybody, everybody who puts the blood on the doorpost and eats the lamb who's inside the house behind the blood, all those people are spared. Nobody dies. But the firstborn of every family outside the blood dies. And the Bible says there's, there's a great howling and weeping in Israel, not in Israel, but in Egypt on that night. Now... If, if you look at this, this is actually, this, this, this figure, the upside down U, if you put a little tail on it right there, it's actually a Hebrew letter, Ket. And that's, I thought about getting a whiteboard and drawing it for you, but, you know, that would take planning ahead and I don't do that. <laughs> but that's, that's what you got. Ket is the equivalent, has an equivalent equivalent letter in Greek called Kai. Kai. And that's an X. Kai. The first letter of Christ in Greek is guess what? It's Kai. It's Kai. And in the Old Testament we have this, this picture, this kind of this clue. If you want to be spared from God's judgment you have to be behind the blood of Christ. You have to be behind the blood of the Lamb, right? John one twenty nine. when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can escape God's judgment. Only those who put their faith and trust in the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world can escape judgment. That's the only way. It's the only way. So, in that story from Exodus, it says, so that, so that they may know there's a s- distinction between Egypt and Israel, God's going to do this. In the last day, when God comes in judgment upon this world, He's going to once again show a distinction between the people of God and the people of this world the people of God who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are going to be spared in that day of judgment. But those who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will not be spared in that day of judgment. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be killed. They're going to be punished for their sinfulness. The only way to escape is to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There is no other way. Now, you may say, what gives God the right to do that to me? God is the lawgiver. There is one lawgiver, and that's God. There's only one boss of the whole universe, and that's God. And God has set down His law. And sin is transgression of the law. Now, I'm looking at people who I I know some of you Okay, I know some of you better than others. Some of you i have known your whole life. And I know that every single one of you have transgressed God's law. Every one of you is a sinner. You may say, well, I don't know if I really agree with that. Well, let me me, uh, bring it closer to home. The Bible says the wages of sin... The consequence of sin is death. How many of you think it's possible that you could die? Possible. Not happening tomorrow, not happening today. I mean, just possible. The fact that you could die means that you're a sinner. Because only sinners die. That's, what, that's what's so remarkable about the death of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ was not a sinner. And remember on the cross, what did it take for Jesus to die on the cross? Was it the blood loss? Was it the trauma and the shock? No. What did it take for Jesus to die? Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the Bible says he dismissed his spirit. That's what it took for Jesus to die because he was a man without sin. But you and I, we don't get that chance. We're sinners. So the fact that you're probably going to die, or you could die at any moment, is evidence that you're a sinner. Now let's get down to the nitty-gritty of it. God has given us, in his word, his law. And if you measure yourself by that law, you're going to find you'll come up short. So tell on a lie. Anybody here ever told a lie? If you have told a lie, just say amen. Let's move this sermon along. If you've ever had a bad, wicked, nasty, dirty thought, say amen. If you've ever thought about choking the life out of somebody, <laughs> you, you know the truth about yourself. You know it. You know you're unrighteous. You know it. And God knows it too. But God, because of his love for you, because of his grace and his mercy, he sent into this world his son, Jesus Christ, so that he could die in your place. 1 John 2 2. Jesus Christ is our, he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice. The NIV says it that way. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the one who died so your sins could be forgiven. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you call upon Jesus, he will save you. He'll forgive you of all your sins. They'll be blotted out. They'll be wiped away if you put your faith in Christ. If you get behind the blood, you might say. Now, this judgment from God is coming. I'm going to close with this little story. Now, what country do we live in? What is it? Let's all sit together, United States. One, two, three. United States. All right. So, we fought this big old battle in the 40s against Germany and Japan called World War I. World War II. Who won? We did. First, we defeated the Axis powers in Europe. And then we turned all our strength and attention to the, to the West. So he had to fight the Empire of Japan. All during the mid 30s and through the 1940s, in Tennessee, they were working on a special weapon over there, a secret weapon that would be the weapon that would end all wars, you might say. The ultimate bomb. The atomic bomb. Tennessee. They develop it there. It's called the Manhattan Project. You guys probably heard about it. They develop this incredible technology, this incredible weapon of death and destruction. Harry S. Truman. He only learns about this. He's vice president under, under Roosevelt. He only learns about this weapon's existence after Roosevelt's death, after he becomes president. They, they read him in on this and say, we have this weapon and this thing's, gonna, this thing's gonna do damage like you can't imagine, like you can't believe. Finally, we defeated the Axis powers. Now we've turned to the West the Japanese island is just far enough away from our westward air bases that it's a little bit hard to bomb, but we bombed it. Sometimes we had to bomb it and go on over across into China. It was a very difficult place to get to. When the Americans thought about attacking Japan in a, in a land assault, the cost of lives is just too high. So the... So the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Truman, they decide they're going to bomb Japan. They're going to drop the atomic bomb on Japan. They're going to nuke them. They know it's going to kill thousands and thousands of people. It's going to be awful. It's going to be awful. So what do they do? Before they bomb, they send airplanes over Japan to key cities with torpedoes filled with leaflets. And the leaflets say, I'm paraphrasing, we're coming and we're going to burn you to the ground if you don't convince your leaders to give up. And if you're in these cities we're going to bomb, you better get out. Because fire from heaven is coming. Get out. This happened before the bombing. It happened the day after Hiroshima. To tell them, judgment's coming. America's coming. And we're going to win if we have to melt down your whole country. What a thing to think about. What a thing to think about. What What does Japan do? Well, they didn't surrender, so they got bombed twice, and then they surrendered. But not before thousands and thousands of people were killed not before thousands of people are deformed and and injured by all all the ramifications of using nuclear power, atomic power, not nuclear, it's not quite the same thing. Now, I'm telling you that little story to tell you. A power greater than the atomic bomb, A a justice that you deserve is coming, and I'm here I'm just a leaflet. I'm just here to warn you judgment is coming. And if you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're going to be the object of flaming vengeance from heaven. Take your Bible, look at it 2 Thessalonians 1 4. Flaming vengeance from God. That's what you're going to face for your sins if you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, we have this vivid picture of judgment that's coming from God. The only way to escape is to be inside the blood of Christ, inside the blood of the Lamb. Now, I can't see inside any of your hearts and minds. And I I wish I knew that everybody here had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I wish I could know that for sure. God knows it for sure. He knows what's really in your heart. And if you're here this morning and you want to escape that final judgment of God, the just punishment of God upon you for your sins, you have to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you can go free. You can go free if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have to trust Him. Now this trust is an interesting thing. It means to to rest in, to rely upon to settle into his care for you. Stop trying to save yourself and let Jesus save you. They tell the the lifeguards when they go to save somebody who's drowning, what do they say to them? "Don't, Don't try to help. Just lay in the water and let me save you. My mom's older brother was 15 years old. He was swimming in a river, in a creek in Kentucky. And he was drowning, and one of his friends swam out there to save him. And when his his friend went out there to save him, this guy's name was Junior, Junior grabbed onto his friend in a giant bear hug. (sighs) Arms and legs in panic. And his friend almost drowned getting away from him because he wouldn't let him save him. He wouldn't just lay back in the arms of the Savior and let him pull him to shore. My friends, that's what you got. If you want to be saved... Don't try to save yourself. Quit trying to be a better man, a better woman, a better mom, a better dad, a better whatever you are. Quit trying to be a better you. Quit trying to clean up your act. If you wait until your act is all cleaned up before you come to Jesus for salvation, you're never going to come because you're never going to get yourself squared away. I've been trying for 45 years. You have to stop trying to save yourself and let Jesus save you. If you don't, you're going to be destroyed. Now let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Now while you're sitting there in your seat, and there's nobody looking around, I hope, nobody talking. Maybe you in your seat, where you are, you know you need to call upon Christ to save you. You're not quite sure how to do that. Maybe you've never really made a prayer before. You don't know how to talk to God. If you you say it, if you prayed a prayer like this, with sincerity from your heart, just in in the recesses of your own inner person, if you said to God, please forgive my sins. I'm trusting in Jesus to forgive my sins. Please save me. Well, that'll get the job done. If that's the prayer you'd make in your own heart, that'll get the job done. If it comes from a heart of faith, a heart of faith. For whoso, this is Romans ten thirteen. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a Bible promise. The apostle Paul said, "No man can confess Jesus can call Jesus Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. Call upon Christ, ask him to save you, and he will save you. He will save you." And you're going to want to know if that really worked. I know, you're going to want to know if it really worked. And what will happen is as you go along, the Lord will confirm himself to you. His spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. God will make it clear to you. He'll help you to know that you belong to him. Now, I know in this room there are a lot of people who are Christians. And I figure there are people here who are not Christians. So I'm going to pray for those who are not Christians, and then we're going to be done. Father, I know that in this room there are, that I have brothers and sisters, and there are your sons and daughters. And Lord, we lift up to you people in this room who do not know you as their Savior, We pray, Father, that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, that they would believe on Jesus, that they would trust in him. Lord, we pray for those persons who may have just now called upon you to save them. Father, we ask that you would pour out the comforting, assuring presence of the Holy Spirit and that they would know they belong to you, that you've taken up a residence within them. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name and for His glory. If you prayed that with me, would you say amen?